Hello and welcome to Movie Culture. Today we are talking about Monsters University. Monsters University was released in 2013 and is Pixar's 14th feature film. It was written and directed by Dan the Man Scanlon. If it's been a minute since you've seen the movie, here's a quick synopsis. And if you have seen the movie recently, we will put timestamps in the show notes so you can skip to the discussion. Before they go off to work, Mike and Sully are first-year scaring students at Monsters University. The future friends meet at college and initially start off as rivals, and their rivalry results in them being thrown out of the scaring program. The only way back in is to compete in the university's scaring games, a competition between fraternities and sororities to find the ultimate scarers. Mike and Sully join the misfits in the Uzma Kappa fraternity, and together they must beat the odds and win the competition, or be expelled from the school. As the team struggles, the two learn to work together and slowly become best friends. So Tay, what did you think of this movie? I liked it. I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was a fun time. I was engaged with what was happening. It wasn't the most mind-blowingly awesome of the Mm -hmm. movies, but I had a good time. How about you? Yeah, I feel the same way. Let's, uh, Let's go with the grading system, since this is a college movie. I think this is a solid B. Yeah. Sure, nothing to, you know, stand and applaud about, nothing to pin up on your bulletin board, but still a good movie. And of course, always nice to be in the world of the monsters. Yeah. So what did you like about it? Well, let's start in that world because the world of the monsters is the most fanciful world that Pixar has given us. And it's the most intricate and different from our own. And I will just scoop up any drops of information we can get in this world and any time we can spend in it. So That was really exciting to me. And especially being in the university was something I really, really enjoyed. I love this world. I totally agree. I love seeing how the doors get made and then how they get tested. I loved seeing how the cans get made, even though that's supposed to be a boring class. I would I'd be into it. Tay's going to can (laughs) school. I would have liked to see even more like what are the books that they have to read And what's the syllabus like? But I recognize that's maybe not as fun for the direct audience. (laughs) Yeah, if this movie had 15 additional minutes in like collective exposition shots of them reading books where you can read the title of the book, I could have just had that sequence be much, much longer. Any like any of those fun details. I just think they're so great. Yeah, just more of that. I didn't necessarily like the fraternity parts of it. It felt really exciting to see the classes and the scream door, all of that mythos of the world, because that is Monstropolis. That is the world that they've created and it's Mm -hmm. different and it's fresh and exciting. But I felt like when they went to the sororities and fraternities, it was like, oh, What's what's that going to be like in this world? Hazing and bullying and toxic masculinity. Uh, That's the same as our world. (laughs) Yeah, I'm of two minds about this, because on the one hand, I love the way that's portrayed. 
especially at Monsters University, which is, you know, the prestigious school in this world. I loved the pomp of the school, the way you have the quads, the way you have these big brick and marble buildings and lecture halls, and everything looks the way that we think that elite old colleges look. While also acknowledging the flip side of that, which is universities are populated by 19 and 20 year olds, most of whom don't care about the large architecture and instead are playing hacky sack or joining improv groups or fraternities. I love seeing the way that this movie pitted the high class of college versus the reality of the way that people in college act and behave. I thought that was great, but I definitely agree with you that in this fantasy world, why do we need fraternities to be as bad as they are in the real world? Couldn't we have left that trope behind? Yeah, and it does a little bit of subverting some of it. The okay fraternity, the one that that Mike and Sully end up in. Uzma Kappa. Uzma Kappa. Uh, They do an initiation ceremony that is interrupted by the mom doing laundry in the basement. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a lot of fun. I loved the mom. Great character. (laughs) And of course, it is shown as wrong that the most, quote, elite fraternity on campus bullies Uma Kappa. Yeah. But it still glorifies the existence of fraternities in the first place and it makes it look like fun. It makes these parties look fun. I think that someone watching would still want to be part of one of these groups. We both went to colleges that didn't have fraternities or sororities. And the way that this movie can't imagine the college experience without those groups, I think is notable. In order to even participate in the scale games, Mm -hmm. which seems like a silly little competition game that everyone takes way too seriously, including the dean of the school. Chill, guys. This is no different than my intramural football league. (laughs) Um, But in order to participate in the scare games, you have to be in a fraternity or sorority. You can't just sign up if you haven't been accepted into one of these groups. I do think it serves a purpose, though, in the movie, because so much is about letting Mike know that he doesn't belong. And really, the discrimination against Mike specifically for what he looks like and how he acts and how that will prevent him from ever being a really productive, successful member of society. And the way that that is brought out by the fraternities, that they're the ones who get to say, you don't look like us, you don't act like us, so you can't be a part of us, and we are the way to success. I think that makes a lot of sense, that that's where the discrimination begins. And then I think it is a really interesting, truthful part that that is actually codified by the rest of the school, by the dean, you know, by everyone. It's not just that they're bullies, it's that they're bullies and they're powerful, Mm -hmm. which means that they get to create this system. And look, it turns out that Mike ends up proving them wrong, as we see in the end of the movie. But yeah, they do have all the power. And I think that is similar to the problems with the current fraternity system at most colleges. Yeah, this movie is a lot about institutions and Mm -hmm. The way that power structures work and being accepted into these institutions. Yeah. And I want to say one more thing about Monsters University, and that's this. I think of the Monsters Inc. world, the economics of it are a little confusing to me because on the one hand, Monsters Incorporated is an energy company, but on the other
other hand, they're treated like celebrity athletes. That's a little confusing. But if you're treating them like athletes, then it makes sense that there are a number of different companies or teams and a number of different colleges. And Sully is a star right? He's a star recruit. And then he works his way up through the minor leagues. And then he makes it and he turns into one of the best scarers of all time. Mike changes the scaring game. Yes, he never turns into a great scarer. But we see at the end of Monsters, Inc., we see that Mike is the one who figures out that laughter is more energy efficient than screams. So he turns in to be the person who creates the most energy. And also, Randall is the person who Sully competes for the scaring record against. They're going against each other. So I'm thinking about this from a college sports perspective. What would happen if three of the most important athletes in a sport were freshmen at the same college in the same year? And that's insane to me. That's like, I could bring up examples that you, our listeners, are not interested in, like the early aughts Miami football teams. Mm. But, (laughs) you know, just the idea that like Mike and Randall were college roommates and then they went on to be incredibly famous and successful people in the world. And like Sully and Mike were in the same fraternity. I don't know. I just think that that's a really funny thing. I do have a question about the company thing, though, Mm -hmm. because it seems like Monsters, Inc. is the only company. I think there are a bunch of scare companies. Okay, They act as if it's plural, but I think Monsters, Inc. is the big one. All right, because otherwise these colleges are just churning out scarers, but there's only maybe 10 jobs. Yeah, that's a great point. I still don't understand how this economy runs. Look, let us know more about the distribution of employment and work in this world. I want them to make a spinoff, but it's just a documentary about how Monstropolis functions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or like release a textbook, please. I'll read it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, is there a service industry in Monstropolis? There is because there's the restaurant that Mike and Sully go to. Of course. Yeah. So there is probably a culinary school. Oh, yeah. Release the culinary school spinoff. Oh, so fun. So good. Okay, wait. (laughs) What else did you like, Josh? Well, I want to stay on Randall for a second. This movie is a prequel to Monsters, Inc., as we've been talking about. And prequels have kind of tricky tasks in that they both have to tell a compelling story in and of themselves, something that is unique, something that is fully contained, and also to develop necessary backstory for the main franchise. And and I think that Monsters University is okay at the second one. I think that the way that they establish Mike and Sully is good, but maybe not exceptional. But the way that they establish Randall, the villain of the Monsters, Inc. film, I think is really, really spectacular. Randall is really an ancillary character in this movie. He only has two or three scenes. The first is where he is rooming with Mike, And he shows Mike that he can turn invisible. No one takes that seriously. And that's because when he is invisible, his glasses still are just floating around so you can know where he is. Mike is the one who tells him, take off your glasses. And when he does, all of a sudden he gets to the squinty, creepy Randall. So we see that development. And then at the end of the movie, he is competing directly against Sully and He goes to scare and Sully goes to scare and Sully's scare is so good that Randall falls onto a heart patterned carpet. And because Randall's skin is like a chameleon, he becomes heart patterned. And as Sully is celebrating, Randall looks over and says, that's the last time I'll ever let you beat me at anything, Sullivan. 
And just in those two and maybe a third or fourth scene, we really get to know Randall, where he's coming from, and how it was Mike and Sully who turned him into this uber creepy and competitive villain of a future movie. So I really love the way that they gave Randall's backstory. Yeah, and I think that that backstory shows a little bit about how Randall is so desperate to gain status in this world. And he's Mm. trying so hard and he keeps getting rejected because he doesn't fit into this aggressive norm of how... Hyper-masculine? Yes, about how monsters are supposed to be. And the way that he finally is able to gain this status is by fitting in with this elite fraternity And he is the one that has to help them bully Mike and Sully. And that bullying is ultimately what rises him up. And I think that it really does a good job of showing the way that this system that perpetuates aggression and hypermasculinity, if we fully buy into the system without thinking critically about it, it can turn us into villains. And also the way that we are impacted by the people who surround us. Yeah. If Mike had stayed roommates with Randall, if they had stayed best friends, Randall wouldn't have turned out that way. It was because he got placed into this fraternity and then kicked out of that fraternity and brought into this whole other mindset. But Randall also made the decision that he was going to put his status of course, yeah. above anything else and above other people and the the monster that he truly was, <laughs> yeah, his own integrity. Well, maybe that's to say there is no true integrity. We are only the sum of our choices. And Randall had the opportunity to make choices that would have led him to be a good version of himself. And being surrounded by a good, supportive, kind community could have steered him to those choices. But instead, in the fraternity system, He was steered towards these negative decisions, which impacted who he turned out to be. Yeah, I think that that is right. It's both. It's choices and also influences. Thanks for indulging my Aristotelian tangent on what is the self focused on Randall from Monsters University. But I want to hear about a character who you really enjoyed. (laughs) Baby Mike. Mike Wazowski. Mike Wazowski. (laughs) There's just one scene in the beginning of this movie of childhood Mike that is so adorable. He's so small. Okay, that's a little scary again. (laughs) But he's really cute. I like that. Also in that first scene with baby Mike, there is just a really subtle device that's used throughout the movie, which is about Mike crossing boundaries. There is a warning line on the scaring floor that the students can't go past. And Mike moves past it. But it's a moment when he is at the line and he decides to go over or to not go over. And that is repeated over and over and over throughout the movie. You know, when he is stepping foot onto campus, they give him a moment of standing off campus and then taking the step over the threshold. Every time Mike enters a new situation, the movie is careful to show him really appreciating the opportunity he has by crossing the threshold, going through the door, going past the line over and over. And that was just such a small, nuanced, 
cinematic decision. I just really appreciated that bit of cinematography. And that also is so great because it serves as part of his characterization. Yeah. And as a plant for the plot later when he crosses the boundary into the human world to try to prove that he is scary after Mm -hmm. all. And when he crosses the boundary to leave campus after being expelled, because this movie does end in him being expelled. The moment where he leaves that boundary, you understand the importance of that moment because you have seen how much it matters to him about being on the outside versus being on the inside over and over and over. Yeah, I love that. All right, give me one more character you liked. I really like the Dean. Dean Hardscrabble? Yeah, she is truly terrifying. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The character design is really good. And I like that they threw in a female scarer. They have a couple that they reference in this movie. I think they heard our first episode. (laughs) They threw in some so that we... Uh, don't have to talk about the very obvious sexism and glass ceiling in this industry of monsters scaring. Um, but I really like the Dean. I liked the voice actress. Who was the voice actress? Helen Mirren. She does a great job. Um, the Dean is a little bit questionable about some of her decisions about who she's deciding to just expel. She's not very professional. No, she makes this deal publicly in front of all the other kids with Mike that if Mike wins the scaring games, then he can be back in the scaring program. But if he loses, she gets to expel him. (laughs) What? Yeah. Also, she's like way too chummy with the fraternities. Yeah, it's not a great look for her. The dean of the college can't be at the like Beer Olympics fraternity games. (laughs) Yeah, and then also she's, I mean, so Sully ends up cheating in the games So that Mike feels better about himself. Yeah. And he goes right after and he confesses that he cheated to the dean. And she's immediately just like, well, then you're expelled. Which, yes, Sully should face consequences for cheating. But again, he cheated in what is basically the Beer Olympics of the fraternities. It's not, it doesn't feel like a expel-worthy offense. Especially considering that before this, the fraternities were just fully bullying and harassing the okay fraternity like they humiliated them at the party and then plastered a photo of them across the entire campus honestly impressive commitment to the bit it did make me think about how much time and energy it takes to bully somebody Mm -hmm. yeah i really liked the scene there's just it's a throwaway joke but they bully and embarrass the uzma kappa fraternity They have a picture of them looking cute, which is a bad thing. And I want to get back to that in a second. Oh, yeah. And then they plaster this picture literally all over campus. They put it on T-shirts. They put it on mugs. And then the Roar Omega Roars sell it for a charity. (laughs) And Mike goes up to them and says, hey, stop doing this. And they say, what? You don't like charity? That is pretty funny. It's a great, just self-aware moment. (laughs) (laughs) But let's talk about the cuteness. Yeah. And it's not specifically about the cuteness, but it's about cuteness and scariness in this world. And I think I just don't fundamentally understand it. In Monsters, Inc., scariness is, I think, a necessary evil. Mm. They appreciate that it's not a good thing. It's maybe not a thing to be proud of, 
but it's a thing that society depends upon. And your success and contribution to society depends on you doing something undesirable. I think there are a lot of parallels there between Monstropolis and America under late capitalism that in order to achieve in our current world and in order to be traditionally successful, you need to potentially go against your own values to a certain extent, right? And you can try and balance that, but you feel like you're doing more good than harm, maybe. But in Monsters University, scariness is like a good thing, but also it's not a good thing. I guess I don't really understand what position we're supposed to have on being scary in this movie. I think even in the first movie, being scary is more than just a necessary evil. I think that we see the society treating Sully like a celebrity and kind of this hero worship because of how successful he is at scaring. Mm -hmm. It is separate from how they are to each other. But Sully's treated that way because of his production, because of his value, not because of how scary he is. He's a good producer because of how scary he is. But the fame doesn't come from the scariness. My point is we see the monsters being scared a number of times, and they don't enjoy that sensation. And maybe it's just that in our emotional language, in the human emotional language, which is you know, who this movie is by and for. Spoiler alert, no monsters were really involved in the creation of this movie. We have our own ideas about scariness. And maybe I'm just saying that leached a little too far. And if you're going to fundamentally shift the paradigm on what traits are desirable and undesirable in this world, you need to do it in a little bit of a more nuanced, full way. I just, I think that it's not that they're praised for being scary. It is that they are praised for having the ability to be scary. And they're not worried about how the kids are feeling because the understanding of kids in the society is that they're totally separate and dangerous and the monsters are not concerned about the well-being of the children. I think the kids are viewed as capable of suffering, but incapable of agency such that they don't have standing in society, in the monster society, which means that farming their suffering, much like we do in factory farms, is acceptable, if not actively desirable. Yeah, I don't think that there is much thought that the monsters are giving. I thought me comparing the kids, human children... (laughs) to factory farms would generate more of a response. (laughs) Wow, Josh, yes. (laughs) It does make sense. Um, But I actually just, I didn't find that that was jarring to me or that that stood out to me or that I felt like they are going too far with valuing scariness because the traits that they are looking for to produce scariness, Mm -hmm. to therefore produce money and energy in society are the same things that we value in this culture, which is the general markers of masculinity. Size, strength, aggression, confidence. Yeah. And when monsters don't display this, it is an indication 
to the rest of society that they do not fit into the bounds of what they are. So they Mm. are both treated as if they are worthless in society. And so they shouldn't be treated with respect. But also I do think that there is a level where people who do not fit into these societal norms are threatening. And I think that there is, and this is probably me looking too deeply into it, but I think that in the beginning of the movie, we see Sully who walks in and, you know, is a Sullivan. He has the family name and he looks like what a scarer is supposed to look like. Yeah. And then you have Mike, who's the opposite of this. And Sully is very aggressive towards Mike. He's often picking fights. He's pushing Mike's books over. He is acting in a way as if he is threatened by Mike and what Mike represents, which is existing outside of these bounds. Because I think Sully has built his whole identity around these bounds and being the most important person within these boundaries and the person that exemplifies these norms perfectly. And if there is a world outside of these norms, then Sully doesn't know where he fits and he loses a great deal of status. And that is what Mike is threatening. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It brings me to something that I didn't necessarily love in this movie, which are the Mike and Sully arcs, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they start out as rivals and they get to be friends. And the shift between those two stages is pretty quick. You know, they are rivals and then they turn into reluctant teammates, right? They don't trust or respect each other, but they know they have to work together. But I did feel like when they started to actually respect each other, when they went from being groupmates to teammates, was just a little off. Did that feel off to you? Off in what way? They hadn't been working together at all. They had not had success, you know, working parallel to each other. We as the audience knew they needed to start working together. But one day they just, they go to the scaring facility. They realize they're not so different because they both collected monster cards. And then they decide to be best friends. (laughs) And after they're best friends, they do come to respect each other more. But I think I would have preferred that their respect comes before the change in their relationship. So that moment where they bond over collecting monster cards is the moment where they break into Monsters, Inc. and they look through the window at the scarers. And it's not just that they talk about how they're the same because of the cards. Mm -hmm. It's that Mike is showing the whole fraternity that there are lots of different kinds of monsters on the scare floor. Only one woman, but lots of different kinds of monsters. What's the line he has? Take a good look, fellas. See what they all have in common? Uh, no, not really. Exactly. There's no one type of scarer. The best scarers use their differences to their advantage. Wow. Terry, look. Hey, look at that old fella, racking up the big numbers. Don, that old fella is Earl the Terror Thompson. What? Where? That's really him? He held the scare record for three years. Oh, third door for the end. Call a killer, Claus Benitez. Look, the 
screaming Bob Gunderson. I still have his rookie card. Me too. Doesn't have the speed anymore, but his, his technique, technique is, is flawless. You collected scare cards, huh? Yep, 450 of them. Impressive. I have 6,000 still in mint condition, but you know, 450 is pretty good too. Hey, look at me. I'm Earl the Terror Thompson. I've been a real jerk. Mike is pointing out that each monster has a different, unique ability that allows them to be a scarer and be successful as a scarer. And Sully kind of looks over at the rest of their team and realizes that he has been judging them too quickly because actually perhaps they do have something to contribute. Mm. And I agree with you. I don't really like this being the shift. And this leads into a bit of a problem that I had with the theme in general, which is that respect only comes in this movie once Sully realizes that actually these people might be able to contribute to society within the already established norms of what is acceptable. Yeah. He looks over at them and says, oh, maybe they can be scary after all. Mm -hmm. And that's close to the message that I would like to see where everyone has their own unique ability and they should embrace what makes them special. But it's with the extra caveat of, and then once they embrace what makes them special, then they can contribute to society and thus gain respect and status and then be happy. Anyone, no matter what you look like, no matter who you are, you can still be a valuable cog in the capitalist machine. Yeah. And part of what makes Monsters, Inc., the first movie, so exciting and part of why I love it so much is that over the course of the movie, they deconstruct the entire foundation of society. Yeah. It's a very ambitious movie and they do a good job with it. But what that means is that in order for the society in the first movie to fundamentally change, the setup of the society in the beginning of Monsters, Inc. needs to be a flawed system. It needs to be one that is worthy of critique and needs to be changed. And the problem with a prequel is that it can't change the society because it needs to be the same as the beginning of Monsters, Inc. Mm -hmm. So we already know that scaring is wrong, that they're valuing the wrong things, and yet this movie can't change those things. And so it's operating within a system which we know is problematic is intended to be problematic in a future movie. Yeah. And it's kind of like seeing Mike's arc be that Mike doesn't fit in, but that's okay because he can find another different way to fit in to this toxic society and gain status and money in that way instead. Yeah, that's a real prequel problem. Like the world at the end of this movie has to be recognizable to us in a way that I think lowers the ceiling on the potential quality of this movie. But yeah, it does seem like the theme of this movie is about how anyone can contribute to society in a problematic way. 
And I suppose that is a nice theme, right? Like another way of saying that is anyone can be special and what makes you special can make you good and successful. But yeah, because we know that the end goal of that is a problematic one, it's hard to have that as the complete, you know, alpha and omega of a character arc. I think also it's a question of what does contributing to society mean in this movie and how is it represented? Yeah. Because if it was anyone can contribute to society in a way that helps other people and makes the world better, that's great. Yeah. But that's not actually what this movie is saying because the goal is always represented as an increase of status. Mm -hmm. We see that in Randall. Randall wants to be popular and gains popularity. We see that with Sully, who comes in as this representation that everything that society wants falls from that and is kicked out of the fraternity, the elite fraternity that he so badly wants to be in. Mm -hmm. And we see that in Mike, who wants so badly to be part of the scare floor because the scare floor is represented as celebrity. Because when he's a kid, he turns around and he sees these people walking and they seem to be lit by the heavens. Yeah. And he wants to be that. And he wants to be on his own collectible card. He wants to be that celebrity in that way. And I just think that it's it's notable that that is clearly the goal of the characters. They want to be in the most elite college. They want to be in the most elite fraternity in that college. They want to go to the most elite company. And it's it's always about that marker of their position in society. And it's not about any kind of actual helping the community or anything like that. That is really interesting because the movie ends with Mike accepting his own mediocrity in a way. Briefly, that's how his arc ends. And Sully reminds him that he is actually not mediocre. He's very special. But it does feel like Mike has chase status for the entire movie, for his entire life, has figured out how can I, from my station, with the discrimination that I've faced as, you know, a small hairless monster with very few eyes to a high status position. And, you know, Mike says, if I wanted it enough, I could be special. But he has to accept joining Uzma Kappa and being okay. Mm -hmm. And that's what he says at the end of the movie after being expelled. I'm okay being okay. But you're right that he's not. The whole movie is about how he's not. And that isn't a acceptance, an acceptance with his station and an understanding that he can be happy even without the status. It's him being resigned and defeated, even though we it's undercut a second later because Sully comes back in and says, no, you are great and you can get that status, like you said, in a different way. Yeah. And I think that what I kept feeling a little bit uncomfortable about, and especially at the ending when Mike says that I'm OK being OK, is the movie makes it seem like a given that because Mike couldn't achieve this one standard that they've set in their society for what it means to be a valuable, important person, mm -hmm. that Mike himself 
is mediocre. Yeah. Rather than there is one single trait that they value. And if you don't have that trait, then you don't have that trait. And that's the problem with the society rather than the problem with the individual. It reminds me of the, I think it's an Albert Einstein quote, or at least it's frequently attributed to him, that everyone's a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, then, you know, you won't see it in the fish. I don't know how that quote ends. <laughs> but that's the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, you you get what I'm saying. Like fish can't climb trees, but like fish are good at other stuff. I don't know what they're good at, they're but good other at fighting stuff. their sons across the whole ocean. <laughs> Here's a real great dad. That man would do anything for his kid. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think the movie, in a different way, is actually arguing that. That you shouldn't feel forced to judge success on traditional metrics. That at least was my takeaway as the viewer, even if the movie says that, you know, but it is still important that you end up at Monsters Incorporated. But I appreciated that as a potential theme. And I think that is valuable, right? We don't all need traditional metrics. And there are things that make you special that can make you successful. And you don't have to think about traditional status symbols. I actually think the movie walks this line quite well, that you see people being successful by what metrics they like and using their own gifts even if they're not their traditional metrics, even if it's not how big and hairy and scary you are, you can still do really good things, right? Some of the monsters in Uzma Kappa aren't built for scariness, but that doesn't mean they don't have value. And that doesn't mean they can't be successful and happy. It just means that it's slightly misdirected. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, th I think that it's certainly possible that I'm being too critical here. I think that my issue was that with the rest of Uzma Kappa, it's that they may not look scary, but they can still have value because they can still be scary. Yeah. And the same for Mike. He may not be scary, but he still has value because he can help other people be scary. And I think that it's very much remaining in this loop where you have to get your value by one metric. Is that unfair? I don't think that's unfair because that's where the movie ends up. The movie ends up with the rest of the fraternity in the scares program and Mike and Sully going off to Monsters, Inc. to be scarers with that intention, at least. But I do think there are a number of points in the movie, and this is sort of a hard structural thing that I'm curious about your understanding of. I think there are, are examples within the movie that show that they have value outside of being scary or towards the goal of scaring. I'm thinking specifically of the two-headed monster in the fraternity, their flair for the dramatic and misdirection, and that being useful. And, you know, the old guy, Bob, you know, using his job as a salesman to distract them. And the silent one getting the flag as the giant librarian monster is chasing everyone around. This movie is wild. All those things that I just said, like, <laughs> I can't believe all those just happened. But we see each of them contribute in an important way, in a way that gives them value over the course of the movie. So I don't necessarily think that we see that they 
only have value towards this one systemic end goal. But we do see that A, they have value and can have success and can make a difference. And they are contributing towards the systemic end goal as best they can. And maybe their skills are not best suited for this final thing. And we see them have success with their skills when they can utilize their full skill set. But that doesn't mean that that will all be utilized at Monsters Incorporated or wherever they go as scarers. Because your job, the way you can contribute in this capitalist system, cares only about a small slice of you. And the rest, we as a society don't have a very good way of nurturing and keeping up. I think we let people really overly depend on the part of themselves that is valuable for work and let the rest of themselves drift away. And I think what the movie is trying to argue, at least what I hope it's trying to argue, is that you should nurture the rest of yourselves and you should remember that your skills are really, really good when pointed in a particular direction or for a specific thing. And if that's not the thing you're being paid for, that doesn't mean that you don't still have those skills. And it's okay to have skills and hobbies outside of work that are unmonetized. That's a really generous <laughs> reading. <laughs> that's very optimistic. I hope that I hope that that's most people's takeaway because it's much better than mine. I I just felt like the movie was saying that you can find a way to use your unique hobbies and talents to contribute to the capitalist machine. If only you just think a little bit creatively about how you can use your talents to contribute. Look, I think it is saying that too. And I think they're really two sides of the same coin. It's saying that no one is perfectly matched up with the capitalist machine. We're both agreeing on that. Mm -hmm. And I think there are two ways of looking at that. The first is there's a part of you that is oriented towards productivity. So you can focus on that in order to be productive. And the second is, and there's a part of you that is not. So you can remember that that part exists and is important. And I actually think that both are necessary. I think that thinking of yourself as a special, important person and full of yourself is not necessarily sustainable. You have to think about how you interact with the world around you. In our current world, you still need to be productive. And I don't think that productivity in every sense is bad. I don't necessarily think that productivity in any sense is bad. I think that, you know, being a part of society is an important thing. I think that being part of the one dirty energy company at the center of the industry in that society, that's a whole separate thing. Again, give us more information about the economics of this system. <laughs> but I do think it's okay to see, okay, what parts of myself are desirable in the workforce and to to lean into those parts and to think about how you can present yourself in that way as long as you're not also, you know, losing the rest of yourself. Yeah, that's a good way to look at that. I like that. I think that it's it's complicated and I don't really know where I necessarily stand on it. Mm -hmm. There's definitely aspects of this message that do rub me the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. 
But I agree that it's still important to contribute in some way. I think it's just really tricky in this movie because they have established that the world is broken. <laughs> and, yeah. and they they fix the world in, in ways in the second movie, but it's it's really hard to root for these characters when the goal is for them to contribute successfully to a system that we know is broken. And one thing I'm hearing from you is also a critique of higher education institutions. I appreciated that the most prestigious university in this world also has a fantastic work placement program. But this is the downside of trade schools is that it fits you into a particular role in society. We can either have colleges be full of liberal arts and let you grow in lots of different ways and understand who you are and what your passions are in a way that doesn't fit well into society and leads to a lot of people being unemployed, unemployable, severely underemployed, or really jaded about their society because the efforts and the skills that they have nurtured for years and been encouraged and incentivized to nurture turn out to not be appreciated by the rest of society. That's the liberal arts path. The way to make it so that people are not jaded, that their education is not useful, is to make their education useful and to say, here's how you can be a part of society. Here's how you can be a tradesperson. And that's what this is. This, this is the other side. This is what higher education looks like if you are focused just on jobs. The one nuance here is that this is how you fit into jobs in what we understand to be a broken system as opposed to maybe a good system or a system that you need, but also like our world is a broken system. Our world, not the monster's world. Yeah. So I think in either direction in higher education, you end up with people who are told to either limit themselves in order to fit productivity or to not limit themselves and then find themselves at the mercy of an uninterested society. I would say that the current university system is monstrous. Yeah, as as we were talking and as you were saying that, I was thinking about how it's hard to root for these characters being in a broken system, just as it's hard to root for us. <laughs> and And that success in a broken system is messy and complicated. But I, it does feel like more than just a trade school, which I think is letting it off easy, it would be like if there was the most elite institution, it would kind of be like if Harvard was a trade school for- Wall oh, Street. Hmm. <laughs> so kind out, of like reality. Shout out to- uh. The Harvard Economics Department. <laughs> and or for oil barons, <laughs> if, if that is what the product of these elite institutions was, if if the product that they were churning out was oil barons. But it just it, it makes it knowing this about the society just makes it feel messy. <laughs> yeah. Colleges are an institution in society. It's one of the things that we have decided are integral to the continuation of societal values. And when you know that the society is a broken one, 
the institutions, the pillars that uphold it, uh, are not without fault. And this gets back to our problem with the fraternities. The movie doesn't go against this institutional system. It really believes in the institutions, right? It thinks it's justified that Monsters University leads to this program, even if that's not the path that Mike and Sully end up taking. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I enjoyed this movie. I thought that it was fun to watch. Mm -hmm. I liked a lot of the sequences with the scare games. I liked seeing a bit of background about the world itself. But it's really pushing against the constraints of a prequel. Mm -hmm. It is far less ambitious than Monsters, Inc., but also than a lot of other Pixar movies that we've seen. And because of that, I don't think it really rises to the top of these movies. Yeah, it doesn't have the the ambition that others do. And I think we have talked so much about are these movies kids movies, adult movies? We haven't talked as much about that recently, I think, because there have been fewer themes in the recent movies that are really for adults. Fewer themes about what it means to be a parent, what it means to grow old, how it means to function in society. You know, the past few have been about, kid, you're special, and being different is okay. And that is a good theme, but it is not lofty in ambition and scope as some others are. Well, I don't think that this is a kid's movie. (laughs) I think that saying that this is a kid's movie is kind of putting it in this negative idea of kids' movies being just less sophisticated. Yeah, that's a good point. And this movie is a movie about college kids Mm -hmm. and a movie about how to find a job. (laughs) Yeah. It's not necessarily uh, kid-friendly material. That's true. It's fun. It's certainly fun for kids to watch. It's a movie about how to fit your skills into the workforce. Yeah. (laughs) Which... Yeah, that's that's a college movie. It's a movie for college kids. Right. So I think that this movie is okay. Like Uzma Kappa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, I think that is the end of our Monsters University episode. Josh, what are we watching next week? Next week, we are watching Inside Out. Oh, I'm Inside really Out. excited. I am also excited. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars only. (laughs) Tell the algorithm that we're cool. It really does help. It really does help. And we really do appreciate it. And we will see you next week with Inside Out.